Please do take out your Bibles once again and join me in turning to the Gospel according to Luke. Where we begin our second message in our new series, Knowing for Sure, the Gospel according to Luke. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we do bow down before you. We worship and adore you. Father, we know that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So, Father, be pleased to feed your gathered people today that we may grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned a few moments ago, uh, last week we ended uh, with verse 4 in chapter 1, and today we're all the way toward the end of chapter 2, beginning in verse 39. We're going to go back in Advent and look at the birth of John the Baptist, uh, the birth of Jesus, since Luke gives us the most detail of that miraculous time. I think most of us are familiar with red letter Bibles, right? Red letter Bibles where the words of Jesus are in red ink, not black ink. Now, I think there's a good intention behind that. It, it highlights the recorded words of Jesus, the recorded words that the gospel writers chose to include in their gospels. Now, good intention, but there may be a little bit of a less than desirable effect. You know, it, it somehow discounts other words um, as less important in view of the fact that all of Scripture, every single word from beginning to end is all God's word. It's all breathed out by God. So today we're going to be looking at some red letter words, as it were. In fact, the first words, the first words of Jesus. Uh, and someone's first words are usually really important. The first words. Now, if we look at Matthew, the first words of Jesus recorded by Matthew was at the time of his baptism let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Those were the first words of Jesus that Matthew chose. Well, Mark chose the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Read in chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled, Jesus says, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In John's gospel, um, it's during the time of Jesus' calling of his first disciples we, we hear Jesus ask a question, what are you seeking? And then saying, come and you will see. Well, here in Luke's gospel, it's before Jesus' public ministry. It's in the temple when Jesus is 12 and he's in the temple in Jerusalem. And, and his first words that Luke chose to include in his gospel are two questions. Why were you looking for me? 
Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, as I mentioned before, this episode, this incident, this childhood incident is unique to Luke. It's, it's, it's the one, think about this, it is the one recorded incident between the birth narrative and the public ministry of Jesus. You see, not only is there silence, so to speak, between the Old and New Testaments, Scripture is for the most part silent about the life of Jesus between his birth and the beginning of his ministry. Silent, that is, with the exception of this one story of the boyhood of Jesus, his childhood, his youth. Now here we are in Luke and we need to think back to what we uh, thought about last week in terms of Luke's purpose and plan. And we saw that in the first four verses. You know, his, his purpose is, is because all of us have our doubts at times. Luke is writing to provide certainty about the person and work of Jesus. And this certainty is not arrogant, overconfident, but rather it's humble certainty. It's quiet sureness. His purpose was to provide certainty. And his plan to do that was to write an orderly account, a narrative account that is historically accurate, thoroughly researched, and well-organized. Organized to show who Jesus is and what he came to do, and that can be captured in chapter 19, verse 10. Jesus says that he came to seek and to save the lost. If you want to hang all of Luke on one verse, it's chapter 19, verse 10. Jesus himself, he said he came to seek and to save the lost. To save all kinds of people lost in all kinds of ways. You see, Luke wants his reader then and his reader now. God wants the reader of Scripture to know now to, to, to know that for sure Jesus is for real. Now this childhood incident that Luke chose to include in his gospel, this narrative account of the life and ministry um, of Jesus served to provide Theophilus. Remember Theophilus? It's who he's writing to. It's, it's who the book is dedicated to. It, it served to provide Theophilus then and serves to provide all his readers now with an increasing certainty when it comes to who Jesus is and what he came to do and what he did. Now our approach to the text will be to consider that Luke tells us both about both the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus. Luke is going to start talking about the humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus. In other words, this childhood incident in the life of Jesus. And these first recorded words of Jesus will help us grow in our understanding and confidence in this great mystery. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Let's read Luke 2, 39-52. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, 
filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So let's look first at the humanity of Jesus. Notice the bookends, how Luke frames this story. Verses 39 and 40, they're in Nazareth. And Jesus grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. My friends, that is 12 years in a single verse. You see, right before that is Jesus being presented at the temple and you had uh, Simeon and Anna responding to the presence of Jesus in the temple at the dedication and then nothing for 12 years and yet it's summarized by that one verse. And he ends this in verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus is becoming well-rounded. Jesus is becoming balanced. He's growing physically, intellectually, spiritually, relationally. He's growing. He's developing true humanity. You see, Jesus didn't show up on the scene as a 30-year-old Palestinian Jew. We all, we all know the birth narrative, right? The babe born in Bethlehem. But you know what? That babe grew up, matured. I mean, Jesus was six. He was eight. He was 11 and a half. He was 12. It's just a glimpse of of the humanity of Jesus, the, the fact that as a human, he increased, he got stronger physically. He got, he learned as a human. He grew in his relationships with parents and siblings. Jesus is truly human. And this 
truly human young boy, this 12-year-old journeys with his family to to Jerusalem, we read, for Passover, one of the three festivals, uh, Passover, Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles. Passover was that first day of that seven-day feast of unleavened bread to commemorate the exodus from Egypt. You know, they were supposed to go to these three festivals, but I think gas prices were high. Not really. But what happened was, because of the distance, the religious leaders said, you know what? Not really three journeys, but one journey a year. Passover. When that 20,000 in Jerusalem became 150,000. Crowded. A festival. He's 12 years old. It's significant because at age 13, a Jewish boy became a man. It's what later developed to be the bar mitzvah. But in these years preceding that 13 years at 11 and 12, the family was supposed to take that young son and expose him to the operation of the temple, to expose him to Passover in Jerusalem. See, Jesus at 12 was getting ready to become an adult member of the Jewish religious community. Joseph and Mary, faithful Jews, doing their best, sinful though they were, to follow the Lord's instructions. And notice, did you notice the amount of detail as to what the boy, Jesus, was doing? He was sitting, listening, asking. You see, at that day, the, the, the rabbis were, were known as the teachers, and they, they taught, and a lot of times it was question and answer. And Jesus is in the midst of them, sitting, listening, asking. And where is he? He's in the temple, the place where God's presence was most clearly made known, where God had promised that he would be and meet with his people. It was a place of worship, but as you see, It was also a place of teaching. And while some commentators and some people may think, aha, that 12-year-old Jesus was teaching them, no. We don't read that. We read that he was sitting, listening, asking, and they are amazed at his understanding. They They are amazed at his answers to questions. What we see here in terms of the humanity of Jesus are typical family relationship dynamics, right? We see that in the spoken words of verses 48 through 50. Now, at first, this appears like the inspiration for the writers to the script of the movie, Home Alone, right? Was this the inspiration? No. It couldn't have been. Jesus wasn't so much left alone, mistakenly overlooked as the rest of the family rushed out of the house to get to the airport to fly on that vacation. I think it was to France. No, he wasn't left home alone. He chose to stay behind. And we see that. He stayed behind. Jesus stayed behind. It does not say they left him behind. Jesus stayed behind. 
And yet, Jesus was home. He was home in the temple. As he would describe it, what? As his father's house. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there to see this scene? The mom and dad searching. I've been there. Those of you that are parents, you know what it's like. It is not happy. I love hearing y'all stories of packing up the car and leaving somebody behind in the car seat. Right? I've heard that. Uh, We've been in a place where it was really crowded and I couldn't find our son. It's a scary time. Panic. Parents and children are supposed to be together. There's a separation. Notice what Mary, his mother, says. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Mary's a good mom. She's rightfully responding. In response to that, Jesus asks two questions. And yet in asking, he makes a statement which we will consider in just a moment. And finally, when we think of Jesus' humanity, notice the beginning of verse 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Here's Jesus at home in his father's house, and yet he also listened to his parents. They said it's time to go. He went with them. They went back to their hometown. And Luke says he was submissive to them. How does Luke know that? Luke, the investigative reporter. Hey, Mary, can you tell me about that incident? I've heard some things about Jesus in the temple. Can you tell me, Mary, about Jesus' teenage years? Submissive. Humanity, obedient to the command to honor his parents. I mean, right then and there, are we submissive to the authorities God places over us? That commandment about being submissive to parents, rightfully honoring parents, means honoring all the relationships that we have in life. Jesus, fully man, fully a boy, a growing boy. See, Luke wants his reader to be confident that Jesus of Nazareth was a boy who grew up with his parents, Mary and Joseph. He did not show up on the scene at age 30. He didn't show up on the scene, let me back up. He didn't show up on the scene as an infant and then back up to heaven and come back down at 30 to start his public ministry. No, fully human. He grew up. Now Luke also wants his readers to know that while Jesus is an ordinary boy, there is something extraordinary about him. You know, if you slow down extraordinary, I learned this just a few years ago. 
If you slow down extraordinary, you get extraordinary. People are noticing that Jesus is extraordinary. We know, of course, from the rest of the witness of Scripture, Jesus is divine. Let's look now at the divinity of Jesus and a clue. is in verse 47. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. In other words, they're realizing someone is among us who is the same as us, but is different from us. Here in this narrative account, we see that Jesus has a self-awareness of who he is. Here at age 12, he, he knows that he's the eternal son of the father. Uh, no one had said, my father. It was a unique relationship, different and deeper than anything that had ever been known. Yes, Israel could say God is our father, and they did that occasionally. But no one had said my father when referring to God. No one until Jesus. So his self-awareness of who he is and his awareness of where he is He is on earth in his father's house among people. Jesus, you know, people are amazed. His parents are astonished. But but Jesus is amazed and astonished at the action and reaction of his parents. Because get this, it was a matter of fact for Jesus. Where else would I be? Yes, yes. I'm your son, but yes, I'm the eternal son. Where else would I be but in my father's house? The place where my father and your father have said they would, where he would be. You know, it's interesting. Um, Scripture gives us instances of Jesus weeping. Jesus crying out. We see his expression on the cross. We see him at Lazarus' grave. We see the fully human, emotional Jesus. And here's just the matter-of-fact Jesus. I'm here. I'm, I'm where I'm supposed to be. He's aware of who he is. He's aware of where he is. And he's aware of what he's come to do. The will of his Father in heaven He's where he needs to be. He's, he's doing his Father's will. It's mysterious to be sure. Not my will, but yours be done, he prays. He's conscious of a divine constraint. You see, Jesus here in saying, do you not know that I must be in my Father's house? He's submissive to his heavenly Father. He prays, not my will, but your will be done. Do we pray that? I think we just did, right? In a way. On earth as it is in heaven. The humanity of Jesus. The divinity of Jesus. Okay, so Luke, apart from the birth narrative, wants his readers to know that Jesus of Nazareth is both man and God, both human and divine. Now, why is this important? 
Why is this important? Because it's going to provide support to this truth that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And what is a mediator? It's a go-between. It's someone who's in the middle, who represents both sides. Jesus, as our catechism said, he's our redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal son of God became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. Why was it necessary for this mediator, this redeemer to be God? In a word, he had to have the power to save. And why was it necessary for this mediator to be man? He had to be able to be the sinless sacrifice. You know, the early creeds of the church, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, which we will in a few moments affirm together, they deal really with two things. The Trinity, one God in three persons, And then the person of Jesus Christ, one person, two natures, both human and divine. And people then and people now wrestle with this mystery. Indeed, Jesus Christ being fully God and fully man is a great mystery. And I want us to hear these words from knowing God that you may remember from before, usually around Advent, but it's applicable here. And then we're going to make some comments about that. It's J.I. Packer in Knowing God, and he says this, It is no wonder that thoughtful people find the gospel of Jesus Christ hard to believe. For the realities with which it deals pass our understanding. But it is sad so many people make faith harder than it need be by finding difficulties in the wrong places. Take the atonement, for example, or take the resurrection, or again, take the virgin birth, or take the gospel miracles. But in fact, the real difficulty, the supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us does not lie here at all. It lies not in the Good Friday message of atonement nor in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of incarnation. The really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God-made man. The second person of the the Godhead became the second man, determining human destiny, the second representative head of the race, and that he took humanity without loss to deity, so that Jesus was truly and fully divine as he was human. And then Packer, in his British ways, goes on to say this, Here are two mysteries for the price of one, the plurality of persons within the unity of God and the union of Godhead and manhood in the person of Jesus. It is here, in the thing that has happened at the first Christmas, that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The word became flesh. God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wiggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk just like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. 
The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. This is the real stumbling block of Christianity. Once we grant that Jesus was divine, it becomes unreasonable to find difficulty in any of this. It is all of a piece and hangs together completely. And then this is what he says finally. The incarnation is in itself an unfathomable mystery, but it makes sense of everything else that the New Testament contains. Packer says that the babyhood of Jesus was a reality. Luke, my friends, is saying that the boyhood of the Son of God was a reality. Luke helps us see that. And this story that Luke includes helps us make sense of everything else that the New Testament contains. That Jesus came to seek and to save the lost is, in the words of the angel's announcement, good news of great joy for all the people. And in that modern Christmas carol, that modern Christmas hymn that we sing, that's in hymns ancient and modern, joy has dawned, we sing this, what a savior, what a friend, what a glorious mystery, once a babe in Bethlehem, now the Lord of history. Luke's writing another verse. Luke's saying, once a boy in Jerusalem, once a boy in Nazareth. Now, the Lord of history. Our scene, I hope you heard it when it was read. I hope you pictured it in your mind's eye. Jesus is at the center of attention in the temple. You see, this is the structure of the entire New Testament Gospels, a structure in which Jesus is always the focus and a large cast of characters revolve around him. Two things I think we can take away among many from this passage. The first is this, the Christian life is a life lived in the Father's house. The Christian, that is the person who trusts Jesus, who follows Jesus, must be in their father's house. Not must be as in another work in order to get right with God. Not must be here like you have to be here like attendance saves. No, but must be in the sense that the Father's house is the Christian's home. You see, Jesus was at home in the Father's house. Father is the Christian name for God. Are you? Is there a sense that you must be in the Father's house? That there's nowhere else for you to be? Do you want to go home, to stay home, 
I'm at home in the Father's house, the church, God's people, the Father's house. And secondly, not only is the Christian life a life lived in the Father's house, but Luke's gospel that's before us is not just here to provide information, not just so that you and I can answer some trivia question next week as to what's the one and only boyhood story of Jesus in the Bible. If that's what we think of the Bible, we don't think highly enough of it. No, it's not just here to provide information, but to offer an invitation. And we see that in these first words of Jesus, these red letter words that Luke chose to include, let's listen to him again. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And yet Luke says this of his parents, they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Do you? I mean, who else closer to Jesus than Mary and Joseph? And they didn't understand. Remember, Jesus is ordinary and he's extraordinary. But notice what Mary does. She treasured up all these things in her heart. Earlier we read when she got the angel announcement, she, or it's in Luke, that she treasured and pondered these things in her heart. She considered, she thought about, do you? I mean, when you run into something you don't understand, do you give up? Do you quit? Do you say the answer can't be found? Or do you treasure it? Do you look at it? Think about it? Examine it? Investigate it? Meditate upon it? Where can Jesus be found? My friends, Jesus can be found in the church among the people he has sought and saved. Indeed, where two or three are gathered, Jesus is among them. Where can you find Jesus? To be sure, you can be an atheist agnostic rebel Somewhere in Italy and hear the words of a child say, take up and read and you open God's word and you're convicted of sin as Augustine was. And sure, you can be by yourself somewhere and the spirit of God break into your cold and hard heart. Yes and amen. But scripture declares that if you want to find Jesus, he's found among his people. He's found in the church. I think this is probably the best response to what we've seen and heard. Seen with our mind's eye and heard with our ears. I believe. 
help my unbelief. You know, Luke was written that we would have certainty as to what we've been taught. My friends, the Holy Spirit is our teacher and our textbook is the Bible. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, thank you for this childhood incident in the life of Jesus that's been recorded forever to be in the scriptures that you have given your people. Thank you, Father, that these are the first words of Jesus in Luke at the age of 12 where Jesus was found where he had to be. Father, would you enable your people more and more to be found where we must be in the company of your people, worshiping you, being instructed by you, and being sent out to be witnesses of your grace and mercy. Father, be pleased to equip your church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.